0: Hey everybody, and welcome in to the newest edition of the Justin Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and you can find the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and also the Twitter page at JTimeSports, all caps, where there's breaking news constantly on the page and for show updates in general. Now in today's episode, we'll be covering the NBA and WNBA's playoffs, as they are both in their finals now. We'll talk about the NFL and what's going down there. We'll touch on the MLB playoffs. We'll talk about the NCAA football's first close to real opening weekend. And we'll have our best for last, which is going to be a recap of Thursday night football's game between the Jets and the Broncos. And I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. Alrighty everybody and welcome in to the newest edition of the podcast And we're gonna start off today talking about what's going down in the world of professional basketball Between the NBA and the WNBA So we had game one of the NBA finals Um, It wasn't close It wasn't even remotely close The matchup that looked as bad as it did on paper Looked about as bad as it did on the court It started off well 23 to 10 run by the heat to open the game the lakers sent lebron to the bench frank vogel usually gets lebron out around that time anyway it allows ad to be the complete and total centerfold of the game and allows lebron to steal minutes early in the game That are not as important as let's say the game gets tight and he has to push the whole fourth quarter he would have only played 20 some odd minutes going into the fourth that way he doesn't break 40. Usually, as he has to play the whole fourth quarter, especially at his advanced age. But it's twenty-three to ten. The others for the Heat are knocking down shots. AD scoring for the Lakers, but nobody else is really doing anything. Defensively, they're just giving up buckets right at the rim. Jimmy G gets buckets, is having his way early at the rim, and it's just looking like well, Miami's supposed to be here. We had people talk about sweep. We had people talking about Lakers in five because of the respect for the hero organization only We had Shannon Sharp talking about Lakers in six purely because he said Lakers in six all the way and they've been beating everybody in five So he's not gonna break the ritual. He's a superstitious guy But most of the consensus was four or five And 23 to 10 early was looking like well, it's gonna go at least five because they're gonna win game one and then the others for the Lakers started happening It was two threes by KCP, it was Alex Caruso. And they started this run, they started to come back and then LeBron stepped on the floor. And what ensued from when LeBron left the floor to about midway through the third quarter, early fourth, was a 75 to 40 run. It was a showcase in utter dominance. That game went from Lakers down 13 to at one point Lakers up 32. It was a 45-point swing. I've never seen anybody. I've never seen anything like that in an NBA game to quite that extent. I mean, we've seen the Warriors go line up with Death you to start the second half, and it goes from a 2-point game to a 20-point game, and it's over because it's just over. They're going to keep raining threes, and you can't keep up. I've seen that before. I've seen that a few times. Used to dread it as a person who was not a fan of the Warriors. Used to absolutely dread that moment coming. But... To see it in an NBA Finals game, that was shocking to say the least. I mean, we saw dominance, real dominance, the last time we've seen it was 2014 Finals. LeBron was on the other side of the ledger when the Spurs blew them off the floor in five games by an average of anywhere from 19 to 22 points, if memory serves me correctly. That was a mismatch from start to finish. Dwayne Wade needs were done. Chris Bosch just wasn't the level of player LeBron needed to come with him, and it seemed like nobody could knock down a three, so they could just pack the paint on LeBron. And although they did that, he still had a pretty decent series, but obviously it was not nearly enough to lead to Kawhi Leonard's first Finals MVP, a controversial one looking back on it, and even at the time, but Kawhi Leonard's first Finals MVP when the Spurs blew the heat off the floor in a record Finals margin. I think this one could be worse because the final score was an 18-point game, it played like a 30-point game from about the middle of the second quarter on until so kendrick nunn scored 14 in the fourth and the lakers let their foot off the gas a little bit clearly i mean they were rolling defensively seeing that like the heat couldn't get a good shot off they snuffed duncan Robinson. they held tyler hero down outside of a two or three minute spurt jimmy butler could no longer seem to put the ball in the hole after the early part of the first quarter and the lakers defense was everywhere but they again they left their foot off the gas and the Heat got it down to 18 points for the final score, which made the final score a lot closer than the game played. I think the Miami Heat are in very, and I do mean very serious danger, of breaking their own franchise record of the team that get whooped the worst in the NBA Finals. I mean, that was 18 and that was being nice. So now, due to injuries, you're down Goran Dragic, who's doubtful for Game 2 with a torn plantar fascia which plantar fasciitis is a tendonitis in the plantar fascia. If you don't know what that is, the plantar is the bottom part of your foot. It's basically the arch in your foot. It's what holds that together. That's the way Kevin Durant broke, basically the bone in that arch. And the tendon that holds it together is the plantar fascia. Well, usually that's a tendonitis situation. We usually got tendonitis in it and you know it's sore you can play through it sometimes depending on your pain tolerance i've never heard of a torn plantar fascia that is completely new to me so i don't know the validity of him playing at all the rest of this series due to the fact of he had a torn plantar fascia like i said i've never heard of it being torn that sounds a lot worse than just tendonitis. i don't think goran is gonna play the rest of this series which takes away the only real person they have to slice and dice besides Jimmy Butler off the dribble? I mean, Tyler Hero can, but you need his range shooting because nobody else on the team can range shoot off the dribble, not name Tyler Hero going tragic. I mean, Kendrick Nunn can shoot off the dribble, I guess, but he's not a big enough threat consistently to really make the defense swarm to him. Now, if you look at another injury they have on their team in Bam Adebayo, he's also doubtful for game two. Now, he originally suffered this shoulder injury in the Boston series, but he bounced back from it and played amazingly, as we know, in game six to ultimately send the Celtics home and out of the bubble. Now, what's weird about his shoulder injury is when it flares up, he grabs his wrist. So I don't know if it's, uh, it's coming out of place and he's trying to hold it up, or if he if it's just reverbing all the way down in terms of pain and it's ultimately settling in his wrist and so he's just grabbing whatever he can grab. But he's grabbing his wrist and the team is saying it's a shoulder. Now it does trigger when he hits his shoulder. So we've seen him when he fell on his shoulder in the Boston series. He came back out in the game and powered through it. When he tried to run through Dwight Howard, which I don't know how that's a smart idea, but he tried to run through Dwight Howard, give him a big shoulder, he ends up basically flying out of the paint off Dwight Howard and grabbing his wrist again. But again, the main contact was to the shoulder area into Dwight Howard. So that's something to watch. Again, he's doubtful for game two, which means that the Miami Heat already basically 20 point difference in underdogs are gonna be without their second and third best player, second and fourth best player. Against an already supremely more talented Lakers team Game 2 is going to get ugly Really ugly If the Lakers don't win by 25 or more I'd be shocked I don't see the Heat standing In a way of a sweep at this point This is going to be the most mismatched finals Like I said since 2014 When the Heat were on the same side But LeBron was on the other side of it getting swept This is the most mismatched finals since then And even that Heat team didn't get swept That team lost in 5 so this is not going to be good good news is those guys will be able to leave the bubble they've been in there for three months and they can he can put up another eastern conference championship banner and all that stuff but your season's over it's been fun it's been a ride for the heat you know you took out the bucks you took down the pacers you took down the celtics but your season's over and by the time this podcast comes out again next friday I fully expect LeBron James to have ring number four, the Lakers to have their next championship ring and for probably my lead topic to be LeBron's legacy from here on out. But in some NBA news, Doc Rivers has agreed to be the next coach of the Philadelphia 76ers. Now what that means is that Elton Brand's talk and rhetoric throughout the year Is correct when he specifically said he was not trading Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons. Now, had he hired Mike Dantoni, that would have thrown that into a loop because, as we know, Mike Dantoni and Biggs don't necessarily work. Yes, he had Amari Stoudemire in Phoenix, but that's because his system was based around a point guard and Steve Nash, who was not a go getter scorer, he's more of a go getter passer. Nash was a much better person, assisting the ball off the pick-and-roll, more like a souped-up John Stockton. So, from that point, Mike D'Antoni was good with the big and Amari Stoudemire, plus in that era of basketball, you had to have at least one coming through the West. Now, because of a small ball and positionless basketball, D'Antoni, also having a guy like James Harden, went to full-on... ISO small ball, where he was shoot the three or lay the ball up. That was the only thing he was allowing pretty much in Houston. All the guys were encouraged to shoot the three or lay the ball up. You rarely saw a pull up jump shot. I mean, it was pretty much only Russell Westbrook. And to further accommodate that, he trades Clint Capella. So if you would have hired Mike D'Antoni, the first probably story would have been D'Antoni's hire. The second story would have been how fast until Joel Embiid is no longer a sixer because he cleared out Clint Capella. For Russell Westbrook's inability to shoot well if he'd have signed with the Sixers as the coach you would have had Joel Embiid in the way of Ben Simmons' inability to shoot so that would have been something to definitely look at but like I said Doc Rivers is the coach in Philly he likes Biggs you see him with Kevin Garnett you've seen him with Blake Griffin you've seen him with DeAndre Jordan and when you have that kind of track record with Biggs you inherit one of the best three to four big men basketball. I mean, Joel Embiid really only competition for the title is Jokic, Giannis, and Anthony Davis. At worst, he's four, at best, he's two. So if you look at it that way, he has a great situation there. I'm not sure how Ben Simmons is gonna fit in his system. Now, he could have Ben Simmons be a super Rondo. Roger Rondo, obviously we know, is not a great shooter. This playoff run notwithstanding Which he's shooting 40 some odd percent From the three point line Barajar Rondo is not a great shooter So Ben Simmons has shown an inability Or an unwillingness to shoot and so Ben Simmons could definitely be a super rondo in Doc Rivers' system. I mean, his last point guard situation with Patrick Beverly, he won a championship around John Rondo. So that'd be very interesting to see. He'll have to tweak his system a little bit to fit a big guard combination instead of more of a traditional wing forward combination with a true point guard. So that'll be definitely something to watch. Now, what that means is Mike Dantoni is still in the open market along with Ty Lu along with Jeff Van Gundy whose name has begun to circulate seriously in coaching discussions. Now that leaves New Orleans, Houston, Indiana as the main three jobs left along with Oklahoma City. So it'll be very interesting to watch who gets one of those jobs. In other news in the NBA, Bradley Bill has purchased a very large nice home in LA. It can mean completely nothing. I mean absolutely nothing. It could just be Bradley Bill bought a home. But conveniently, he bought it in LA, which the Lakers have a max contract slot this offseason, and the Clippers are looking for additional help. Again, it could mean absolutely nothing. It could just be, man, I really wanted a home in LA because Washington DC sucks in the summer. That's what Bradley Bill could be saying, and everybody else got a cool house in LA, so why not? It, It could be that. I'm just saying it was something I thought I needed to report because in case the connection is there to the Lakers, or the Clippers, this could have been the first telltale sign to do so. Speaking of those Clippers, they're in a tad bit of a tailspin. They don't have a coach right now. Word through the league and in the clubhouse is that Ty Lue was the leader, but they don't have a coach right now. It seems the team is all splintered in terms of roster chemistry. Morris, Reggie Jackson, those guys are probably out of there, Montrez Harrell. It has an ability to be the, a free agent this offseason. And because he just won $6 a year, he's going to want to get his money. You don't really have a vocal leader anywhere because the players won't listen to Paul George and Kawhi doesn't talk. And so the Clippers are not in a good spot organizationally. They're going to have to figure out something in the offseason, whether that's trading Paul George, trying to recoup some assets, whether that is saying, hey, we're going to hire Ty Lue, we're going to run this thing back whether that's dipping into the luxury tax for their shot at the Lakers, who I expect to be NBA champions within a week. And so when you look at it that way, the Clippers built their team for one reason, that's to go against LeBron and Anthony Davis, and ultimately they lost because their two flaws came out, the lack of ability to guard an offensive center, one, and the lack of ability to guard a scoring guard, two, in Jamal Murray. So, They have to fix that issue. Patrick Beverly is a pest, but he's a small pest. He's a little pest. He's not a six-foot-six pest. He's a six-feet pest. Pretty skinny pest at that. And so they'll have to fix that. But now we're going to shift to the WNBA Finals quickly. And it is between the Seattle Storm and the Las Vegas Aces. Now this Finals has all kinds of explosive potential in it. I'm talking this could be the best WNBA final since the Sparks and the Lynx went at it that last time where it was a falling down, basically a buzzer beater to win the, the WNBA championship in the game five. Making a selection, I have been great at the WNBA this year, but I would go with the Las Vegas Aces in five games, purely because of one Asia Wilson. She's a WNBA MVP. She put the team on her back in the conference finals, or what used to be the conference finals. I guess you say the semifinals. She put the team on her back and carried them. Now she's gonna need some more help from Angel McCutcheon in this series because the Seattle Storm boasts Sue Bird and one of the best players in the league, if not the best player in the league, in Brianna Stewart, along with the rest of that basketball team. But I would have to go with the Aces in five. This just feels like it's their season when they win. Got Angel McCutcheon. A lot of people project them to be. A championship contender if not win the whole thing besides this Seattle storm team then this is one of the benefits to the way the WNBA did their playoffs and this season was the perfect season for it because everyone played the exact same amount of games 22 you played everybody in the league twice and it was the top eight teams went to the playoffs regardless and then after that it was you just play the regular playoffs So it was the perfect unconference playoffs and the best two teams would be in the Western Conference this year. However, they would normally have to play in the Western Conference Finals. They're playing in the NBA Finals for a true look at who's the best team in the WNBA. But to reiterate, I have the Las Vegas Aces winning that series with Asia Wilson being the WNBA MVP in five games. But up next, we are going to shift to the NFL and talk about what's going down there. Alrighty guys, and we are back And now we're going to shift to the NFL And what's going down in America's sports Now, we had a very great week of week 3 We had some upsets, we had some shockers We had some more of the same for a few NFL teams In regards to some upsets and some shockers The Lions beat the Cardinals Kyler Murray had his worst day as a pro in my opinion Throwing Three interceptions and allowing a team that I thought he should have beat. I even picked him in my jacks pack. I thought that he would beat the Lions pretty handily. But the Lions and the fighting Patricious had a great game. Picking off Kyler Murray three times and ultimately winning that game. We had the real debut of Justin Herbert. The non-shocking one thanks to Tyrod Taylor's punctured lung from the team doctor. And the Panthers took that game 21-16. We had the Tom Brady-led Buccaneers dominating a shorthanded Denver team, 20 to 10. I'm sorry, 28 to 10. And so then, it was like shootout city. We had the Seahawks and the Cowboys with probably, in my opinion, the game of the weekend. I mean, that game had literally everything. That was the craziest game I've ever seen in my life, or one of the craziest. I mean, they had missed extra points, they had a blocked extra point, they had a touchdown that the guy celebrated too early got caught from behind and turned to a touchback. It had scramble touchdowns. It had fumbles. It had interceptions. It had Dak Prescott stumbling and rumbling, trying to find anybody and firing an interception in the middle of like three people to end the game. It was absolutely nuts. It had receivers running wild over from busted coverages. It was just crazy. I've never seen a game like that. It even had a safety and a muff punt. It was just ridiculous. But all in all, that was a great show and a great matchup. Sunday night with two of the old guard, with Aaron Rodgers versus Drew Brees, with Aaron Rodgers showing that his best weapon is the deep ball, and Drew Brees showing that his best weapon is anything but the deep ball. Both were without their main receivers, Packers, Sands, Devontae Adams, and the Saints, Sands, Michael Thomas. And the Packers win 37-30, to although it felt like a 14 or 17-point game, pretty much all game, and never really thought the Saints had a shot there, especially in the second half, to make it interesting. Now, in terms of Chiefs Ravens to Monday night closer, that was a tour de force in coaching and ability by the Kansas City Chiefs. We all know the Ravens wanna come downhill. They wanna rumble and tumble to get downhill and to make Lamar's reads as easy as humanly possible to where it is a run action, now Mark Andrews is open, boom. It's a run action, now Hollywood Brown is open, boom. It's a run action, Double out the backfield. It's always, everything is set up from them off of a run action and to try and create misdirection from the defense and even when they run the ball, it's rare that it's just a straight up handoff to Mark Ingram. It's usually some sort of action, some sort of look with Lamar Jackson having the option, somebody crossing face, somebody doing the reverse, to where there's a constant second look and a constant second motion to where the defense has to hesitate for just a half a second and allow the Baltimore Ravens blockers to get out in front and leave for Lamar, leave for Mark Ingram, leave for those guys. Well, the Chiefs had great eye discipline and they had something that you need to have to beat the Ravens, which is pressure from your offense to make the Baltimore Ravens score and to attempt to outscore you. They forced Lamar to be a passer, not a great one. He only had 97 yards passing, but they boxed him in inside of the pocket, forced him to be a pocket passer, and blanketed their receivers. They played great defense, and Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy threw a party on their on their defense, on the Ravens defense rather, using Pastor Mahomes and those weapons. I mean at one point they pulled out a fake double reverse tight end slip screen. It was weird they threw an underhand shovel pass to the fullback they threw a passing touchdown to the left tackle that was a flat out tour de force and that was a flat out coaching clinic on both sides of the ball by the Chiefs, specifically by eric b and andy Reid's led offense but now to preview week four not the best slate of games ever admittedly we could see a few first, however. For instance, in Thursday Night Football, we could see the Jets finally, finally be the first team to fire their head coach and get rid of Adam Gase before he ruins Sam Darnold's career. We've seen Adam Gase before with a young quarterback that a lot of people didn't think was good and Ryan Tannehill. Ryan Tannehill leaves Adam Gase and becomes markedly better than he was under Adam Gase. Now he has Sam Darnold. Talented, little raw, makes some bad decisions, talented and now people think Sam Donald isn't very good. I promise you, there's a rumor circulating that the Steelers could be interesting to trade for Sam Donald if the Jets decide to move on, you know, by the by the trade deadline which I doubt, or in the offseason if they land the number one pick, they'll be looking to move Sam Donald to allow room for Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields. Adam Gates is going to ruin Sam Donald if he doesn't get fired. And if he somehow makes it through the transition to the next quarterback He's gonna ruin the next quarterback. There's no saving Adam Gates in terms of a head coach. He could be a fine coordinator, position coach, college coach, high school water boy, I'm not sure. But he is a not a great head coach. We've seen the results of quarterbacks leaving him and getting better. So my hope is that for the first time in my life, I'm rooting against Sam Donald. Hope he fails tonight only to ensure that Adam Gates gets fired as the rumors are pursuing throughout the league that he's coaching for his job tonight against a shorthanded Denver Broncos team. Now we do get a pretty interesting matchup at the 12 o'clock slot between Chargers and Bucks. I think that's a game where that'll prove just how far the Buccaneers offense has come from its week one showing against the Saints by playing a pretty good Chargers team. And it'll be the first time we see Justin Herbert prepare after a loss he was expected to play in. For instance, he prepared for the last week after the loss in week two, but he wasn't ready for that game against the Chiefs. He wasn't even preparing as the starter, he was preparing as the backup behind Tyrod Taylor. Well, this week he gets a full game of film for a game plan built for him. He gets to really look and diagnose an offense as the starter for the full time coming off a loss. So that will be interesting to see how Justin Herbert prepares for that game. We could get the first Joe Burrow NFL win. I have high hopes this week's going to happen. He's playing Jacksonville at the noon kickoff slot, and I think Burrow's going to get that win against the Jaguars. And the big game of the week is the Chiefs versus the Patriots. Like I said, Andy Reid and Eric bien put on a coaching clinic against the Baltimore Ravens. I'm sure Bill Belichick saw it, and I'm sure he's going to be eyeing that big time now for the probably the biggest news of the week so far the tennessee titans covet outbreak so it started off as oh there's six tests positive then it became eight or nine now it's up to 11 maybe even 12 people inside the organization of the titans tested positive for covet and resulted in the nfl's first like i said a week of first the nfl's first game postponement of the season far as we know Right now, the outbreak was contained to just the Tennessee Titans. They played the Vikings, who have not had any positive tests for COVID so far this week. So as of right now, it's a breathe-aside relief that maybe the NFL has avoided what Major League Baseball went to. With when the Marlins had an outbreak, it was like seven teams at one time, it appeared. All contracted COVID, all had outbreaks, games were canceled all over the place. The whole league was in upheaval for about three weeks to a month, really. But it seems the NFL avoided that. They have a lot less flexibility than baseball because of bye weeks and traditional NFL schedule being played on Thursday, Sunday, or Monday. And so at first, the hope was that you know they can postpone the Monday or Tuesday and keep the schedule as it is. But then the game was ultimately postponed between the Steelers and the Titans, which is going to make the Steelers play 13 weeks in a row without a bye week. After originally anticipating basically having a split season, and the Tennessee Titans have an easy rescheduling as well. So it worked out as good as could be expected with a COVID outbreak amongst the team. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that situation. And up next, we're going to shift to Jack's pack right after a very short break. Alrighty guys, and we are back and now we're going to do Jack's pack, which is when I predict some of the betting lines I do five a week make you guys some money out there who can bet legally on sports betting. Now, this week, we didn't have our best week last week. Uh, No, we had our worst week so far. Our first losing week, we didn't lose bad. We went two and three, and we still have a positive record overall at eight, six, and one. Kylo Murray really bit me there, went his three interception game against the Lions. But it happens. Hey, That's one of the downsides to this, right? One of the risks. But we're going to keep chugging along into week four. Now, I never bet the Thursday night game just because that game is always, always an interesting situation. And I always stay away from the Thursday night game. But hey, we're going to go with the first game in the Jacks pack, which will be Tampa minus seven against the Chargers. Take Tampa i think that tampa has one of the most underrated defenses in the league that secondary may be young but that front seven is exceptional and i think it's going to be a fairly low scoring game because the chargers do have a great front seven themselves although they are missing chris harris jr and again justin herbert being a rookie quarterback todd bowl is going to throw looks at him he has not seen before because that'll happen with herbert for a few weeks just in case, if you know, depending on how long he's starting, he's going to get looks from veteran defensive coordinators he's never seen before. So I think Tampa's going to win by more than a touchdown. So I would go Tampa there. Baltimore minus 13 and a half versus Washington. Take Baltimore. This is going to be a massacre. Baltimore was embarrassed on national TV. They've heard all week about, you know, is Lamar really elite? They've heard all the Ravens. Do they even have a shot of beating the Chiefs? Can they beat the Chiefs? They can't even be title contenders because they have to go through the Chiefs, which they failed to beat since Patrick Mahomes has taken over as starter. Washington's without Chase Young. And honestly, before this day even started, before I even looked up the current point spread, I didn't care what the number was. I was going Baltimore regardless. They're going to win by more than two touchdowns. This might be a 25, 30 point affair in terms of a victory for Baltimore. So I'm going to go Baltimore over Washington, even with 13 and a half points. Arizona, three-point favorite over Carolina. I'm going to take Arizona to win by more than a field goal. Kyle Abramie last week. I get that. But in similar theory to Baltimore, being embarrassed on national television by the Chiefs, Arizona lost a game they should have won against Detroit. And they know they have to keep pace with Seattle. And they should be the Carolina team that can score some points, but does not really have the best defense. And so I expect Kyler Murray to throw and run and have a nice little field day against the Panthers. And they're going to win by more than a field goal. The Rams, 12 and a half point favorite over the Giants. I didn't know this game was happening this weekend until I looked it up to find the points lines. And 12 and a half seems a little low. So I'm going to take the Rams there to win by more than 13 points. I think this is gonna be another one of those 20-point games, 24-point games, because the Rams feel like they should be, have one more win on their ledger, but they had a questionable pass interference call against the Bills at the charging back, and the Bills defense a lot better than the Rams defense, and again, with no Saquon Barkley, and Danny Dimes handing out Dimes in terms of fumbles and turnovers, I think the Rams are gonna win that game fairly easily. Cleveland, plus four and a half versus Dallas which means they're a four-and-a-half-point underdog against Dallas, I would take Cleveland. Now, I would probably pick Cleveland to win the game outright because I don't think Dallas has an offensive line to contain Cleveland's defensive line. And Cleveland has found a magic formula against the Bengals, and they replicated it last week. They're just going to run the ball with Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb. keep Baker Mayfield attempts down. Very Case Keenum-esque or Kirk Cousins-esque last season with the Vikings under coach Kevin Stefanski who's the head coach now in Cleveland to keep the attempts down run the ball play a ball control style system and I would pick them probably if I had to gamble on it I would pick them to win the game outright but I especially picked them four and a half point underdogs to keep that closer than the spread against the Dallas Cowboys even though it's a road game but again without the full capacity of the crowd how big is home field advantage as we've seen this season and that is what we'll have for Jack's pack. So up next, we're gonna shift to the MLB playoffs and what's going down there. Alrighty guys, and we are back. And now we're gonna talk about the MLB playoffs and what's going down there. Baseball made it. Surprisingly, I would not have guessed that two months ago with the Miami Marlins outbreak along with a couple of other outbreaks that happened, like the Cincinnati Reds. But I would not have guessed that they would have made it. But hey, the baseball has made it to the postseason. Now you've had a few sweeps in the biggest playoffs ever, 16 teams. You've had a few sweeps. Tampa swept the Toronto Blue Jays 2-0. The Yankees 2-0 over the Indians. The Astros continue the Minnesota Twins' miserable postseason losing streak to 18 games as they win 2-0. Atlanta put out the Reds 2-0. And that is the four sweeps we've had so far. Now, in terms of what I've seen just out of the playoffs, Houston has a chance to right a wrong and make the wrong a right. Because let's say Houston does... You know, they have either the A's or those White Sox. I would go Houston favor in that series. And then unless they play the Yankees, I would have Houston favorite against the Tampa Bay Rays. So Houston has a very good chance of being back in the World Series. If Houston wins the World Series, even without Justin Verlander, who just had Tommy John surgery and probably won't pitch again for 18 months, if Houston wins the World Series... In my opinion, that gives strong validation to the World Series with the beating trash cans and the cheating World Series that a lot of people want to place an asterisk on if they turn around and win this one. So that is something very interesting to watch. The Yankees look dominant at times against the Indians, and at other times, they don't look very well good. Pitching is going to be a definite work in progress for the Yankees, but it's something they could work on. Atlanta, man, after struggling for so long, to get their organization in order and going through the traditional draft way. Not a ton of big free agents on the team at all. They look great and looks like their young talent is finally starting to pay off. Tampa Bay looks good. They looked pretty good over the Toronto Blue Jays who were just overmastering that series. I mean, so we got a lot of different great things going on in baseball. I am really glad that they made it. More professional sports is always great. It's always appreciated. And the more that we can have on at one time, this seems like a dream for a sports fan. I mean, we've got the WNBA Finals, the NBA Finals, football in the regular season, baseball's in the playoffs, and we've got college football all at one time. And so this is great for my show. It's great for sports fans just in general to have more sports on and baseball making it through is very A, impressive, B, appreciated. And I'm glad that we've got more baseball, and we'll gladly be talking about that more as the postseason progresses. But up next, we're going to shift to our final segment before Best for Last. We're going to talk a little bit about what happened in the incident of LA in terms of football last week. Alrighty guys, and we are back with our NCAA football segment of the day. So they have been avoiding any major outbreaks of COVID. So far, so great in terms of that. You've had a couple positive tests pop up, but either the game was canceled, it was a smaller game, or the player was just removed and nobody else seemed to have contracted it. So that is so far a positive sign. We even had a couple more opt-ins in terms of players who originally opted out thanks to health concerns and... The probability of no season have decided to opt in and to play for their universities this season at a chance to up their draft stock. A, B, as a chance to have one last ride on the collegiate circuit. Now, there were some upsets, some big upsets. You had Oklahoma losing to Kansas State for the second year in a row. Quarterback Spencer Rattler threw three interceptions and ultimately that doomed his Sooners, along with not having a good defense, and K-State went into Norman this time and took down Oklahoma. And then LSU fell. The arrival of the Pirate Mike Leach went into Baton Rouge, into number six LSU, who without their best player, and in my opinion, the best cornerback in the country in Derek Stingley, they without them, and the air raid, well, raided, all over LSU to the tune of several SEC school sec records and in terms of 600 passing yards they sliced and diced, scored 44 points now lsu was installing a new quarterback in miles brennan however the offense they look a little patchy but they scored 27 points on their own and jabril cox the linebacker who transferred in from north dakota state caught a pick six to get this team to 34 points total but the pirate pillaged LSU and dropped them from number 6 in the rankings to 20 so both of those teams will be looking for bounce backs this week and another loaded slate of college football games having the conference only schedule provides great games every single week and that is a major positive to going conference only or in the ACC's case 10 out of 11 conference games you get a competitive matchup every week because conferences usually provide at least 2 or 3 in conference good games every week So that's a major positive. I wonder if that's something that the NCAA will look at going forward is to try and get power five conferences to play 10 conference games a year or even non-conference games a year and having one of your non-conference games every year be against another power five school to continue to up the level of competition. Now, the NCAA rejected the theory of expanding the playoff this year, which I think may have been a mistake. They have decided to keep it at four teams. Now, you know, I've been a big proponent of expanding to eight. I think eight's a beautiful number. You can do it perfectly inside of the bowl system where, you know, you play your first games at the neutral site. So you play your first games at the home team. So the higher seed gets home field advantage. You play your next round at the bowls. You play your last game at an NFL stadium. Boom, it's perfect. It's done. Everybody gets revenue. It's a beautiful way to make it work. But the NCAA has rejected that theory, even for this year, going to an expansion of eight teams, even with the weirdness of COVID. So the Pac-12 was pushing for an expansion. A, it's a pretty good way to get their champion in, one. B, he correctly cited that it's a weird year. It's not a normal year. It's not where everybody's playing the same schedule of 12 games. The ACC is playing 11. The Pac-12 is playing seven. The Big Ten is playing eight. The SEC is playing 10. And the Big Ten, I believe, is playing 10 or 11. So almost nobody's playing the same schedule and you're asking them to evaluate them. Those teams are not the same schedule. Now in my opinion, the Pac-12 won't have a case for somebody to get in. I think whoever wins the Pac-12 won't have a legitimate case of the playoff and it'll come down to the Big Ten champion, the Big 12 champion, the SEC champion and the ACC champion. So in the end, it won't really matter. But I think that having the 18s would guarantee all five conference champions get in, and then three at-large bids, which would make a very interesting playoff and a very compact and talented playoff as well. But the NCAA rejected it. You have to respect their decision. I don't agree with it, but you have to respect their decision there. And so we'll definitely keep an eye on college football this weekend. Like I said, it's great to have so many sports on at one time have so many sports live at one time all battling through covid all overcoming covid even baseball with their outbreaks they had the worst outbreaks and they have more than flourished through coronavirus and so that is great to see but up next we're going to shift to best for last which will be a recap of the thursday night game between the jets and the broncos Alrighty, guys, and we are back with Best for Last, which is the recap of the Thursday Night Football game between the Jets and the Broncos. Surprisingly, it was a good game. I mean, usually two bad teams either come together and they have a great game, or they have a game where, well, they look like two bad franchises, which this game had its ups. You had touchdown passes, highlight plays, and then you had its downs, where you had the quarterback for the broncos ripkin throws two interceptions and three passes one of them being a pick six you had fumbles you had on one play a holding a quarterback injury and a fail third down all in the same play very new york jets like but then you had a bunch of scoring final score into being 37 28 in favor of the broncos good news for the broncos your eighth quarterback won a game since peyton manning retired in 2015. Okay, maybe that's not the best news on the planet. But you got your first win. Like I said, this week is going to be a week of firsts and the Denver Broncos secured their first win of the season to go to 1-3. Good news for the Jets, you finally may have gotten the death nail in Adam Gase. Because you can see the talent in Sam Darnold, he showed it on the amazing 50 yard run. He showed it when he got it out of the pocket a few times and ran for other plays. He showed him when he was dropping dimes all over the field at certain points of the game. And then when he got down to the red zone, the play calling went in the tank. It was as if Adam Gates was uncomfortable calling a play closer than 20 yards to the end zone. Because when they got right around the start of the red zone, right around the 20, it became bombs away to the end zone. I mean, at one point they tried a fade to the left side, back shoulder fade, didn't work. Then they tried a jump ball to the right side, which didn't work. And then they went back to the left side, basically with the same fade route that they ran the first play. And that was all on one possession. And so when you look at it like that, we've seen they try to have back Will with Frank Gore to get to the end zone. It seems Adam Gates was very uncomfortable calling a play inside of 20 yards. I would say that Sam Darnold limitations, but he didn't show that anywhere else on the field. He was very comfortable getting the ball to receivers, especially in a tight space. Because he has a pretty decent completion percentage, but a very, very low yards per attempt, which means he's not deep sea fishing hardly ever. And so I guess that's something that they'll have to look at with the Jets with hopefully the next head coach. Because the fact that there's 10% unemployment in this country and Adam Gase is an NFL head coach should flat out be criminal. However, however, Adam Gase does have a nice track record prior to head coaching. So maybe the Jets see he could be the man to help turn them around. But they're going to have draft capital. Hopefully, they'll make a move in the draft either by trading Sam Darnold for picks or dumping the number one or number two pick that will turn into Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields for a boatload of picks to continue to build around Sam Darnold that hopefully they can hit on. But Denver, positive for Denver, they have talent. A lot of talent. They have Bradley Chubb, who looks like he regained form. And you have Jerry Judy, who made a monster catch for a big-time touchdown, before the corner, that Jerry Judy Moss had himself a day with two interceptions, including one pick six. But back to Denver, you have a pretty decent offensive line talent. You don't even have Noah Fant on the field due to injury. You don't have Corlin Sutton on the field due to injury. Melvin Gordon looked like he can play. You didn't have Phillip Lindsay on the field due to injury. And it looks like that you have a pretty solid future for when your quarterback comes back, who's also out due to injury. And Drew Locke you can have a pretty solid football team although in a very tough division with the chiefs and the chargers but all in all it was a good game i think that should be adam gates's final game as an nfl head coach in general but definitely his final game as the new york jets head coach for the jets i've seen signs that sam donald can be a good to even possibly great nfl quarterback if he's surrounded by the right system there was a rumor going out that he could be end up in pittsburgh which would be the perfect system because they won eight games with something called Duck Hodges playing quarterback. And so when you have a situation like that where you proved you can win with Duck Hodges, Sam Donald is a lot more talented than Duck Hodges. So put him in the Pittsburgh Steelers ecosystem and the Steelers won't ever fall off. They'll transition from Big Ben right into Sam Darnold. But that'll wrap up today's show. It's been a fun one. It's been a packed one. Plenty of topics. We bounced all through the major sports and it was fun so i hope you guys join us next week again tell your friends about us like us on itunes apple Podcasts, and spotify and don't forget to follow the twitter at jayton sports for updates and breaking news i hope you guys have a great rest of your day this is your host justin jackson signing out